You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. A much-needed low-income housing project failed to get the necessary votes to advance uh, at the Maui County Council. A key committee heard the measure last week. HPR reporter Casey Harlow is here to explain what happens next. Good morning. Good morning. Yes, so uh, the Hale Mahaolu Ke Kahua project, it's going to be on an 11... proposed to be on an 11-acre parcel in Waiehu, Maui. And uh, last week, the Maui County Council's uh, Housing and Land Use Committee uh, voted 3-2 to in favor of granting certain exemptions for this project so it can go ahead to be constructed. However, the measure needed five votes, and there was a lot of empty seats at the uh, decision-making committee hearing last week, and that's mainly because uh, the parcel owner, it's Maui Economic Opportunity Incorporated, it's a nonprofit, does many, many programs within the community helping residents. They are the landowner, uh, considered the landowner of this parcel, and they partnered up with a couple other developers um, to create this project, and they were the applicant. However, a lot of the council members, or a good number of council members, are board members on MEO, uh, so it is kind of a conflict of interest. And so three to two was the last vote in favor of this, but uh, uh, yeah, and it goes next to the housing director for the county on April 22nd. The council's not going to be hearing this anymore. It doesn't seem like it's going to be hearing this anymore, so on April 22nd, goes to the housing director, Lori Suhako. And she'll have uh, 14 days to decide where this project goes from here. And I spoke with Debbie Kabibi, who's the CEO of MEO, and she's uh, kind of cautiously optimistic that this will go through, but it's still an uncertain future. And to get a sense of like what this project will do, it's 120 affordable rental housing units for families in one bedroom, two bedroom, three bedroom, and uh, I think uh, maybe some studio uh, units in there as well. Uh, helping people who are earning between $21,000 and $44,000 a year. And housing is, you know, a big, big issue here in the state. Maui, in particular, median sales, uh, medium home price on the island is $1.1 million. That's according to Locations Hawaii last month. So the need is there. And Debbie uh, Kabibi, you know, notices this and says this is the best use of land. We need housing now. I drive to work every day, and I see homeless encampments going along the beach line, and it's not people that are chronic homeless. These are people that are driving fairly nice cars, so we know that they're going to work every day, but they don't have a place to live. So this is going to help those people, and and we really believe that this is highest and best use of that property at this point in time. And a lot of the uh, big uh, con- uh, concerns that came up from this is land ownership. It's land title. Uh, MEO has uh, proven uh, through a circuit court case that um, to evict a group of Native Hawaiians who are uh, the heirs of Pehuino, who, uh, who claim that they have ancestral ties to this land, uh, that 11-acre parcel. MEO contested it, saying that, you know, the title is clean, uh, dates back to King William Lunalilo, uh, goes to Klaus Spreckles, and then Stanford Carr. Uh, But there is still a lot of concerns. Um, And uh, East Maui Council Member Shane Sinensi kind of uh, spoke about these concerns as well. Uh, We heard in testimony how land commission awards from the Hawaiian Kingdom often got lost in translation especially uh, when they were moving from uh, to the TMK uh, system of land management and that this property was part of a much larger LCA award. Uh, we've heard from the Pehuino heirs and they've expressed their claims to this pro- property uh, throughout this entire process. Uh, they've clearly stated that they have kuleana in protecting their lineal ties to this place. Uh, including protecting their family burials. The AIS does not guarantee the desecration of these burials, especially with sporadic trenching on the property. And so uh, that was one of the main concerns. This has been going back to around 2020, 2021, uh, and Basically, the property uh, has been vacated uh, of these uh, 
of the heirs of Pehuino who uh, protested the de- development. Uh, they were camping there as a form of protest and went to circuit court to uh, MEO went to circuit court to basically evict them, uh, and they did that earlier this year in January, and that was also uh, highly contentious as well. But outside of that, other concerns were, you know, area flooding, traffic, and the scope of the project. Um, Council Member Sinensi, uh offered some solutions to kind of find a middle ground, because I think it was unanimously agreed that housing is desperately needed mm-hmm. in Maui as well. Uh, scaling back um, the project uh, or even going with a land swap with the county, uh, you know, find someplace else for this project so that they can build this, because this is a very Much unique... Much needed. Very, yeah. It's a very unique opportunity as well. Um, Just a messy process. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And... Um, I spoke with uh, Kabibi, and she said that, you know, we can't do this anywhere else. This has been, you know, going on for, you know, three, four years. And as a nonprofit, they've already, the developer partners have gone through a lot of funds to get through the EIS the, and the necessary studies. And if they were to do a land swap, there is a lot of uncertainties there. So it, it all rests in the uh, decision of the uh, housing Yes. So the housing director will have to decide. And uh, Khabibi says she's optimistically um, she's cautiously optimistic about it uh, being approved. But again, we don't know uh, where uh, this project lies and we'll see. All right. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Casey. Thanks. We've been talking to HRS Casey Harlow. Uh, You can read his story on this issue. Uh, Go to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Civil Beat has a story about the sorry condition of our jailhouses on Hawaii Island. It's a story written by Kevin Dayton and politics and opinion editor Chad Blair joins us to talk about it. Good morning, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. Happy Prince Kuhio Day. Yes, and you and I are working. <laughs> yes, we are. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, yeah, the headline, seeing is believing, atrocious conditions mm. at the Hilo Jail. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, Kevin Dayton's working, too, and he opened his story with the Hawaii County Prosecutor, Prosecuting Attorney, Keldon Walchen, who's saying that he's he's upset that judges on the Big Island are releasing people from the Hilo Jail, who some have been arrested for multiple felonies. Uh, and this is over the objections of uh, the prosecutor's deputies, by the way. He's, he's concerned that public safety will be jeopardized. Uh, and he's saying that simply saying overcrowding uh, at uh, HCCC, as we call it, and bad conditions at the jail are, are misplaced. They're not rational enough. But in fact, judges who have visited the facility as recently as January 3rd say that's precisely why they are releasing people either on with cashless bail or allowing them supervised release, allowing them to await trial at home rather than be in the facility, which, by the way, according to the latest numbers, it's supposed to hold about 126 people. It's at 245. That's as wow. uh, of just a couple of days ago. Well, you know, good for the judges who went down to see for themselves what uh, kinds of conditions, you know, we're talking about. Right. And Kevin spoke specifically with um, Judge Robert Kim. He's the, the the Third Circuit chief judge over there on Hawaii County. And what he saw at least two months ago, he described as atrocious. That's the word he used. He described being shocked at what he sees. He has actually been encouraging his judges, his colleagues, to be judicious, if you will, and not send people uh, to the facility. Kevin, of course, has been reporting on the conditions there uh, at the jail for some time. And, boy, there's some pretty shocking reporting. One of them is about the so-called dry room. It used to be a, a recreational area. Programs were held there. And it's become known as the fishbowl, which I think is a very descriptive word. At one point, it was holding up to, to 30 inmates. Uh, in many cases, they, they couldn't use the bathroom. If they wanted to use the toilet, they had to ask permission of the guard. The latest numbers we hear are, are back down to 15, that it's not nearly as crowded. But these are just some of the things that are coming out of the facility. I think Judge Kim even described seeing someone getting dental work 
in a facility that was about the size of a closet that the patients, the inmate in this case, their legs were sticking out of the closet. And the judge described this as just really not very hygienically proper, certainly inappropriate. Uh, Just another example of what judges themselves are seeing there at the jail. Well, now, uh, I know that uh, uh, the article mentions about, you know, planning and construction on Mm. on another site, right? Right. And there is actually uh, there, not far uh, from Hilo, there is there's expansion going on, about 48 more beds. But that's not nearly enough if you just consider the numbers that we decided, uh, noted earlier. In fact, it's about over 100 percent, right? Too much. Um, But Walton has a point. He says maybe what we need to do is we need to have state and federal support, not only to overhaul HCCC, the Hawaii Community Correctional Center, but also to put up a facility in Kona because you know, they don't have a proper holding facility and you've got to, you know, bus them over, if you will, to Hilo. Hilo. Walton has also said, gee, we focus on OCCC, right? Oahu mm-hmm. Community Correctional Center, which is right here on Oahu, obviously, in Kalihi. And, and, you know, they've spent millions and millions of dollars, still haven't gotten any traction or not much traction in terms of relocating that jail to Halava, which is where the minimum security prison is. And he's saying, well, why are you so focused on OCCC when HCCC really has a much more serious overcrowding situation? Well, you know, I hate to say it, but, you know, remember when we had the riots over at the, the Maui yeah. prison? I mean, <laughs> Kevin reported yes. on that as well uh. with with his sources. And and that's really a concern. One of the things that leaped out from Kevin's story today uh, is concerns about unconstitutional treatment of inmates. He mentions how there was actually several female inmates that were held there recently and they did not have proper access to menstrual products. They They didn't even have enough underwear, certainly not pads. That problem has been correction, corrected according to the Hawaii Oversight Commission. And I should just note that commission is fairly new in its work, led by Kristen Johnson and Ted Sakai is on that and a few other people. And they're the ones that have been trying to get more judges to say, hey, come and look where you're sending these people. Be aware of the conditions that you're encountering. And, and more importantly, maybe we ought to do something about this. Fix the facilities, have more restorative justice, uh, more lenient policies on bail. Yeah, but it, it is very frustrating to know that these uh, jailhouses and and prisons are just in not in the best shape. And you know, there's always that uh, lingering fear that you know we're going to have another consent decree in the uh, in federal oversight. So that's not a good thing. Right, either. it would not be surprised at all. Thanks, Catherine. Okay, thank you so much, Chad. That was uh, editor Chad Blair with today's reality check. You can read Kevin Dayton's story at civilbeat.org. You're tuned to the conversation here on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okawa, oa, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. In today's Backyard Quiz, we're highlighting March being Red Cross Month. Founded in 1881 by Clara Barton, the American Red Cross was given its first congressional charter in 1900. Today, it continues to provide services to American Armed Forces members and their ohana, as well as to provide disaster relief nationally and internationally. The Hawaii chapter officially started over a century ago in 1917, but its humanitarian work can be traced back to even earlier to 1898. That's when 300 women, including Princess Kaiulani, cared for ailing soldiers traveling from the Philippines during the Spanish-American War. But she wasn't the only Hawaiian royalty to take a personal interest in supporting the Red Cross. In 1918, the Duke, Duke Hanumoku, embarked on a 30-city swimming tour across the U.S., sponsored by the Red Cross, to 
raise funds for the World War I effort. For today's quiz, can you tell us what specialty items were personally made by the Duke that were auctioned off at those uh, exhibitions? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets an HPR reusable tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing homeless families with access to affordable housing, such as Women in Need on Kauai. NairitHawaii.com. On the next Fresh Air, we meet Emmy Award-winning actor Brett Goldstein of the streaming series Ted Lasso. He plays Roy Kent, the gruff, foul-mouthed, yet lovable footballer-turned-assistant coach. He's also a writer for the show, and he co-created another series, Shrinking, which stars Harrison Ford and Jason Segel. Join us. Fresh air beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. Today is a state holiday honoring Prince Jonah Kuhio Kalani Anaole. Prince Kuhio is credited with starting the Hawaiian Homelands Movement. The Native Hawaiian Civic Clubs, which advocate for political and cultural issues, also trace their roots to Kuhio. We featured the Association of uh, the Civic Clubs, uh, Hawaiian Civic Clubs, on the show this past Friday. A parade in Kapolei and lay draping ceremony at his statue fronting Kuhio Beach took place uh, this weekend. Today we spotlight the Royal Order of Kamehameha, which took part in the festivities. Arthur Ayu is the High Chief, the Ali'i Aimoku of the Royal Society, which was started in 1865, but went underground during the time of the overthrow. It was Prince Kuhio that brought back the secret society out into the limelight again. Here's Ayu talking about the Benevolent Fraternal Order, which is dedicated to promote and defend the Hawaiian Kingdom. The Royal Order of Kamehameha was actually founded on April 11th, 1865, by royal decree and by in consultation and ratified by the King's Privy Council at that time. So uh, Kamehameha V was the ruler, and it was his idea at that time to establish an order of merit, uh, basically a knighthood. And it was known as the Order of Kamehameha, named after his grandfather, King Kamehameha I. And it was actually awarded to citizens as well as to dignitaries and heads of countries around the world that supported the Kingdom of Hawaii. And so our history extends from 1865 and continues till today. The history of the Royal Order in 1893, with the overthrow, uh, the order still existed, but they went underground and operated secretly because they were thought of as a threat to the republic and to the territory. And it was resurrected by Prince Kuhio, Kalania Ole, at midnight, the evening of June 10th, 1902. Uh, he led a procession by torchlight to the Kamehameha statue, and he proclaimed that the Royal Order of Kamehameha was coming up from underground and was to be reestablished once again. And he was the first leader at that time. It was the title was the Ali'i Aimoku uh, because we couldn't proclaim a Mo'i or an Ali'i Nui or king. Uh, so the title was the Ali'i Aimoku. And he established the first chapter, Hawaii chapter number one, of which I am currently the Ali'i Moku of. And we continue to preserve and perpetuate the Hawaiian traditions and the ancient chiefly 
traditions of the monarchy and of the ancient Hawaiians. And so uh, a lot of the chants that you do uh, when you're out in the community, um, are they all written down or is it all passed down orally? So these days actually um, with with the chants that we have, they're actually all written down and the ash are passed down um, um, orally, but they're all written down. Yeah, and the chants that we normally uh, present are in honor of Kamehameha the first, uh, as his namesake. You have chapters across the state. Yeah, by number we actually have ten chapters, nine of which are actually active. So on Oahu, we have three. Uh, on Hawaii Island, there are four. Then the island of Maui is one, as well as the island of Kauai, there is one. Uh, there is a dormant chapter on the island, from the island of Molokai. What's the membership like? Well, I can speak for my particular chapter here in Honolulu. Active members, we number perhaps about 80 or so inactive, but if we were to put it down in paper and actually collect names from the beginning, we would be numbering a couple of thousand. But throughout the islands, each chapter will boast anywhere from 30 to maybe 90, 100 members for each chapter. Particularly Maui is a rather large chapter. And then the Hawaii Island, uh, because there are four chapters, uh, their membership is basically broken out by geography uh, and convenience to their meeting areas uh, and they would probably number um, probably close to 200. And so how do you get to become a member? Do you have to be Native Hawaiian? Uh, Do you have to apply for membership or do you get invited to join? So originally it as an order of merit uh, the king decided who was going to become a member but now what what happens is the current membership is the first requirement is uh, to be of native hawaiian blood uh, to become a full-fledged member and then you are invited and sponsored uh, into the order yeah. uh, but we do have um non-kanaka as honorary or auxiliary members uh, that provide service in an honor to to the order as well as to Hawaii as a community overall. So we have inducted non-Kanaka, and I will share with you, like in Hawaii Chapter 1, we actually have the state archivist, Adam Jensen, as one of our honorary members because he does great work for the state. He perpetuates uh, the history of the Hawaiian monarchy and Hawaii overall. Yeah, he's the keeper, the guardian of all the the treasures. Exactly. You folks were at Iolani Palace when the portrait of the queen was to travel across the continent to be refreshed, and she will be on display at an upcoming exhibit in Washington, D.C. Yeah, we're looking forward to that. On April 26th, the Hawaiian contingent that's going to Washington, D.C., and it's actually, the exhibit is going to be at the Smithsonian's National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C. Uh, the the 2060 Hawaiian contingent will have an opportunity to preview the exhibit and as well as perform our protocol uh, for the Queen herself. Uh, we're looking at that the Queen has once again traveled to Washington, D.C., to legislate for her country and for her kingdom and share her story once again there in Washington, D.C. Um, so we'll be there on the 26th. The 27th will be a VIP and media event for the exhibit and open to the public on Friday, April 28th. Uh, so we're very excited to be traveling there. And how long will the exhibit last? The exhibit will be there for at least a year. For at least a year. So there will be a lot of opportunity. And the preliminary word that we are hearing is that there will be a traveling show to that same exhibit. Unfortunately, Hawaii is not one of the targeted cities, but perhaps there will be a city closer to Hawaii for for our Kanaka to visit uh, in another museum uh, on the continent uh, to see the same story. Because this exhibit will not only be the story of Hawaii, uh, they will be sharing the stories of other countries who have exhibited 
or experienced rather, have experienced uh, the imperialism of the United States, like Cuba, Portugal, Philippines, and Guam. Yeah, and this was all tied to the Spanish-American War and right. that uh, change of countries in charge. <laughs> right, yeah. It, you know, evidently, I guess the overall story is that it's the first time that the United States expanded beyond the actual mainland boundaries and occupied lands outside of the 48 contingent states. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see how the story is told. Exactly. My personal true hope is that the story they tell will be the true story. Hopefully will awaken others that may have a role or some significant part that they may play to see if there can be further change or the facts, the facts that are presented, we know are true. And... You know, the simple fact is that we know that the Americans that are in charge don't recognize or they don't acknowledge that. Um, but we are hopeful that truth will be presented and that something will, will prevail. Any particular time of the year that is extra special for the royal order that you participate in? We try to be as visual as possible, and we recognize you know, King Kamehameha Day, uh, which is June 11th. Um, that'll be coming up in a few months. You know, and it's interesting that it's one of the holidays that is still recognized. It was established in the monarchy, and it's still recognized as a state holiday. So June, June 11th, and that anniversary date of June 10th is very important to us. Uh, in our personal history at the Royal Order as a reestablished state by Kuhio. We are going to be celebrating Kuhio Day. Uh, then there will be an Ali'i Sunday at Kwai Hao Church on his birthday, the 26th, the following day. What we recognize as one of our founding royal princes at the Royal Order, you know, we'll, we'll be there to, to give pay tribute to Prince Kuhio. December 11th uh, is... King Kamehameha V's birthday, uh, which is kind of interesting in how the June 11th date was founded for King Kamehameha, because back then, the kingdom wanted to honor Kamehameha V's birthday on December 11th, but he was such a humble king, he said, no, I think we should just have a holiday, and let's have a holiday for my grandfather, who united the kingdom and let's push it to the further state away from my birthday <laughs> six which, months six yeah. months and okay. it landed on june 11th and then is there anything just as, as far as the details on the cloaks and the trappings when you observe us we are normally the first of the four benevolent societies in procession as a royal order we lead off with our men in our black suits and you'll see us in short shoulder capes that have decorations and those signify our particular offices. Uh, then you will also witness many of our members in wrist-length yellow, golden yellow capes, uh, and that signifies them as an ali'i, uh, as their rank uh, in our order. And then short red or crimson shoulder capes of velvet. Uh, they are our mamo Hawaii uh, that have not yet quite been elevated to the elite stature. Uh, so they're normally the beginning members. They're the ones that are moving up in the ranks. Okay, so red velvet, red then it velvet. goes to yellow gold, yeah, and gold. then it goes to... And then you'll you'll see short shoulder capes that will be decorated, and those signify the different offices. Uh, those are normally red and yellow. and yellow. We do have those that will have black, and a few of them will also have the green, the traditional colors of the the, bird, the Hawaiian bird. And uh, is it different from island to island? No. the off, no? All okay. the offices from chapter to chapter remain the same. The Royal Order of Kamehameha has established some truths and principles. Uh, we recognize that the Hawaiian kingdom still exists, but we do not put a monarch. We have not placed a monarch on a throne, but we do recognize that the kingdom exists. And the other strong principle is that we will stand for truth and we will protect our people from any further wrong that uh, may come our way. The Kue petition, 
the Constitution of 1864 are all things that we still uh, respect and honor and abide by. We've been hearing from Arthur Ayu, head of the Royal Order of Kamehameha. Uh, took part in this weekend's parade honoring Prince Kuhio Kalani Anaole, the only monarch named a delegate to Congress. The group will travel to Washington, D.C. next month for an exhibit at the National Portrait Gallery entitled 1898 U.S. Imperial Visions and Revisions. The portrait of Queen Liliuokalani Kalani will be the centerpiece of the year-long exit exhibition. <laughs> Support for HPR comes from the Arne and Ruth Worchick Charitable Fund. Learn more about the Arne and Ruth Worchick Masters of Library and Information Science Scholarship awarded annually by Friends of the Library's Kona at folkhawaii.com. With all the ways to get around, ride-sharing, friends, taxis, is there any reason to drink and drive? I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with a panel of experts about the possibility of lowering the legal limit of blood alcohol concentration and why. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Support for HPR comes from Ruby Tuesday Hawaii, offering dine-in and take-out daily at its restaurants in Kapolei, Mililani, Moanalua, and Kaneohe. Catering available for business meetings and events, rubytuesdayhawaii.com. Endometriosis Awareness Month is part of a campaign that started 30 years ago to bring attention to a painful and often debilitating condition. It affects 11% of American women, and treatments have not uh, been met with much success. The conversation, Stephanie Hahn talked with Dr. Cheryl Tu about the condition. She's an obstetrician, gynecologist, and osteopath. Can you describe this condition, and what are some signs that you might have it? So endometriosis is thought to be due to a retrograde menstruation, which means that your period uh, uterine lining is found in an area outside of your uterus. So uh, we would see like period implants kind of on the surface of the uterus. It can be also found on the tubes, the ovaries, or on the anterior abdominal wall. So anytime it's found outside of the uterus, it can cause that pain and irritation. Um, the common symptoms that we're going to see are people that have pain with their periods, but not just with the periods, but even for the time before and maybe a little bit after their period as well. So it's, it's when those hormones um, are already starting to kind of gear up before the period and people will have pain during those times as well. So from what I understand, what I read was uh, 10 to 11 percent of American women between 15 and 44 do suffer from this condition. And it's made worse, people say, because people are not really aware or don't acknowledge its existence. It's not, let's say, like breast cancer where there's a general public acceptance and acknowledgement of this condition. So what are some of the ways that we can possibly identify this? How might someone understand if they have it or seek consultation? Because I think some women might think, oh, I just, you know, I have a period cramp and not understand that it might be a little more serious. Right. It's hard for us clinicians as well to have the diagnosis, you know. It's hard for us to distinguish if someone just has dysmenorrhea, which is just pain with periods, or if they really have endometriosis. So for that reason, a lot of times, you know, you can go for a few years without fully getting that diagnosis. Uh, what I would encourage people to do is really um, 
you know, just to keep talking about their symptoms. Like, um, so if you have pain with periods, but also pain, you know, in that before or after period, or if you have pain during intercourse or pain with bowel movements, um, something that's just more than just the pain with the period, you know, always be sure to kind of keep talking to your doctor about it and let them know that it's still an ongoing issue. Um, for clinicians, you know, we, we recognize we can see that you have pain with periods and it kind of just depends on where you are in life on, on what you want to do about it. You know, so like if your goal is to get pregnant, then we might have to uh, treat it a little bit differently than say if you're 20 years old and not wanting to get pregnant. We know that endometriosis uh, responds to hormones, so it's um, thought to be due to kind of like an overproduction of estrogen. So we try to counteract it by by suppressing the hormones. So um, the first thing we actually try to do is, a, a simple and easy thing to do is give birth control pills because of that hormone regulation. And that will suppress the signal coming from the brain that causes a lot of those painful periods that people are having. If the treatment, um, if you're okay with being on birth control pills, then that's kind of um, an easy fix in terms of like just kind of regulating those hormones. And in that case, we might not get the diagnosis of endometriosis, but as long as the symptoms are relieved, then patients are, are going to be doing okay. So is there any way to prevent this? let's say endometriosis genetically runs in your family or are there things that you can avoid so that you don't get this condition? Right. You know, I, I mean, I wish there really was. Right now, well, we do know that endometriosis runs in families. It's been linked to some genes, but right now there's 12 different genes that they're looking at in terms of, of you know, getting that diagnosis of, of traits of people that have endometriosis. So it's not like we can really link it down to something. Unfortunately, if it's in your genes, though, it's going to come out at some time in your life. Usual times for it to come out is in your reproductive age. So um, usually about 25 to 35 years old. Occasionally, we will have people that have it come out a little bit later in life. That happens um, less often, you know, kind of more of the times around the 20s and 30s. Why it's get triggered to come out at that time, you know, we're not really sure. We know that it has to do with hormones, and there's a lot of other endocrine conditions that also get triggered to come out, you know, later on in life. So, like thyroid disease is a problem where you can't control your thyroid levels, mm -hmm. and it can cause you to have, you know, excessive sweating, sometimes fatigue, um, harder to lose or gain weight, and that mm -hmm. also comes out in your 20s and 30s. Diabetes is another condition that can come out later on. So we know that it's, it's in those genes, and so you might be genetically predisposed. Um, we think that certain, fig, um, or certain things like stress, diet, things like that can trigger those genes to be activated and then cause people pain. That's now, interesting. Now, it's interesting because yeah. sometimes, you know, we'll find that people have endometriosis. Say, like, we uh, happen to be doing surgery on them. We look inside and there's endometriosis. Patient actually never complained about anything. And then some other times we have patients with severe amounts of pain. We go in there, we do a laparoscopy to get a diagnosis, and they only have actually a few small endometrial implants. You know, the way that we diagnose it is with surgery, but surgery is not the end-all, be-all. It's actually kind of more of a medical condition, and so we know that we can treat it using hormones. And surgery can help to ablate the tissue as well, but then they also need to be on hormones after that. Because I did have some friends who attempted and who did address part of the condition through an extremely strict diet. Mm -hmm. very strict diet and really maintaining a certain kind of dedication to their overall physical condition. This makes me wonder how much this condition is exacerbated by things like diet or outside stress levels. Right. You know, well, I'm a firm believer in that um, a lot of things can be cured by diet and nutrition, you know. Um, a lot of these things that come out, you know, especially later on in life, they can be controlled. You can be diabetic, uh, meaning that you physically don't have enough 
insulin being produced so you're not making your own but if you are on a diabetic diet you can go through life without needing to be on diabetic medications Mm -hmm. Um, the theory behind the endometriosis is kind of like an anti-inflammatory diet Uh, so we know that there's inflammatory triggers that can be calmed down with diet and you know exercise but what that is for each individual person can be difficult to determine you know so right. we um, if you want to be really strict uh, we have patients on like a high fiber diet because um, fi- fiber is going to kind of also reduce those hormone levels if you want to be really strict you know you kind of cut out everything um, mm-hmm. to see if you are having like more inflammation because maybe you're a little gluten sensitive maybe you're a little dairy sensitive Mm. Things like that can trigger those inflammatory signals and then can cause the endometriosis to come out more. It can be controlled by diet. Sometimes if you do, like if you just have like an endometrioma, which is your period lining that's found in the ovary, so it actually looks like an ovarian cyst. We call it this like ground glass appearance because it looks like a blood clot and it's in the ovary. Um, Sometimes the only way to get rid of that you know, really is surgery and then continue on your diet after that. So we try to get out as much as we can and then control it from there. How would an individual realistically function with this condition? If you are racked with pain, how do you get to work? What, What do we, as people who want to support people with endometriosis, what do we have to do to make the person who has this condition Uh, have a more livable life. Right, right. I mean, it it is very difficult because um, it really just depends on how how well people are able to cope with it. But it is, it's it's a real thing. It's a a real pain that patients are feeling. And it really just has to do with those hormones and around that time of their cycle. It's it's not meaning like that they, um, you know, like they're not trying because the patients that I have are on anti-inflammatories, like a non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. Sometimes we do have to give a prednisone or ibuprofen or a Tylenol, like whatever is going to work for them. We have people going to like a chronic pain management because they need stronger pain medicines than that and need to be continuously evaluated. Uh, we have hydrotherapy. We have psychotherapy. I mean, it's kind of each individual person on how they deal with the pain. And it can lead to a lot of hours of work missed or school missed. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's because it affects everyone a little bit differently. So mm-hmm. we have to see what the patient's pain threshold is and how much they're able to tolerate. And it's hard for us as clinicians as well because every individual is so different on how they're affected by this. What can we do to build public awareness about this condition? Well, so I think it's growing. You know, I think that um, there's more articles now in um, in magazines or online with social media. So people are being more aware of it. And that's the point. I mean, I think that it's important to talk to your doctor about the symptoms that you're having. And sometimes sometimes it may be endometriosis and sometimes it might not, you know, but we can help you kind of cipher through that to try to see what's gonna work for you um, in terms of pain management, diet and nutrition, maybe doing some hormone regulation. It's whatever uh, we need to do to help you get to have like a functioning normal life is, is our goal. Right. This is really interesting to me also because, you know, one of these things like endometriosis is just not in common everyday discussion. We still don't talk about it. Really appreciate right. you. And it's, and it's sad. It's sad because um, I guess there's always this stigma that's associated around having pain issues or having to miss work. And we're we're strong females we're tough individuals you know and sometimes though it's a little bit more than we can bear and we're definitely not making this up so i just think that it is important to get the word out there and if you are having some symptoms just be able to go in and talk to your doctor about it great thank you so much i really appreciate you taking the time dr two you're welcome 
That was Dr. Cheryl Tu talking with HVR Stephanie Hahn about endometriosis. This month is the 30th anniversary of the Endometriosis Association mission to raise public awareness about the serious and painful medical condition. Dr. Tu is an osteopath and a obstetrician and founder of wellnessobgyn.com. Support cultural reporting on HPR. Kumuhula Auli'i Mitchell has worked for more than 30 years to bring back hula ki'i. The tradition involves using puppets to tell a story. It was almost lost after the missionaries banned hula. It's a sitting hula where we bring the ki'i alive with chant, oli, and then as they awaken, they become the vehicles for the story to be told through. I want to form relationships globally with other indigenous communities and peoples and their puppetry because you go to Aotearoa, New Zealand, they have them. Right. You go to Samoa, they have them. You know, storytelling is all we have. We're oral peoples. Donate today at hawaiipublicradio.org. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. HPR's Dave Lawrence is joined by astronomer Christopher Phillips with an update on the interstellar object that astronomers named Oumuamua. It's Hawaiian for a messenger from afar arriving first. Here's your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer Time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny planet. Also, our guide to things to look for in our dark island skies, thanks to astronomer Christopher Phillips. And yep, we've got him back on the line right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What do you have this week? Hey, Dave, it's good to be back. So this week's Stargazers, the planet Venus continues to be the brightest object in the western sky after sunset. Very easy to spot. The moon this week is passing through its first quarter phase, and so conditions for spotting those faint objects will become challenging as the week goes on. Something else challenging has been the uh, origins of the first observed interstellar visitor to our solar system. Big Hawaii connection, of course, with that. And I understand that's your topic today. It is indeed. You remember that in 2017, the PanStars telescope atop Haleakala spotted an object hurtling through the solar system that was thought to be an interstellar visitor. It came to be known as Oumuamua. Astronomers around the world were quick to follow up PanStars with larger instruments. And since then, the data has been poured over in an attempt to learn more about this mysterious interstellar visitor. And it may be that we have finally cracked this mystery. And this is a goofy thing that wasn't quite like a comet and wasn't wasn't quite like an asteroid, and it led a couple folks to even think it might be an alien spacecraft, huh? <laughs> yeah, there were some pretty far-out theories about it. This object definitely confounded astronomers because of its unique profile and characteristics. The main one being that the object seemed to be accelerating as it transited the solar system, something that appeared very strange indeed. Because an asteroid shouldn't be able to regulate its own speed in space, correct? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That'd be definitely weird. Um, the team of astronomers from UC Berkeley and Cornell have concluded that it's possible that small outflows of gas from melting ice on the surface of Oumuamua may have been responsible for the change in its velocity that was observed, not some engine. I get what you're trying to say. Those things are basically like directional shifts that, as they blasted out some gas, would shift the speed, as it were, of this object. Yeah, in effect, acting as very small but natural engines. Yeah, that's wild. But back to the weird fun stuff, of course, here. Roll the X-Files theme. And that is there's that cat over at Harvard, right? He's a pretty heavy guy who still wants to buy into the concept that this is something to do with aliens, right? Yeah, but those claims have very little direct evidence to back them up. And when it comes to such things as alien spacecraft, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Right now, there's no evidence to suggest that Oumuamua is anything more than a natural artifact, quite 
quietly making its way through the universe. And we know who will be telling us different if and when we learn that. It'll be you. <laughs> Christopher Phillips, thank you so much. You're all welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. And you can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for the Natural Energy Laboratory of Hawaii Authority's Hawaii Gateway Energy Center in Kailua, Kona. FerraroChoi.com. In today's Backyard Quiz, we spotlight Red Cross Month. The organization's humanitarian mission to support members of the American Armed Forces goes back to 1881 when it was first founded by Clara Barton. The Hawaii Red Cross officially began in 1917. A year later, celebrated swimmer Duke Kahanamoku and two other Native Hawaiian swimming standouts, uh, Clarence Lane and Harold Kruger, participated in a 30-city swimming tour sponsored by the Red Cross to support World War I efforts. There was a knitting craze at the time where American men, women, and children were knitting sweaters and socks for infantry soldiers who were fighting in the freezing conditions in Europe, in Belgium, and France. Duke personally knitted sweaters and scarves that were auctioned off at these Red Cross events, and each piece was considered a treasure to the winning bidder. And we had no winners today, but that's our quiz, and it's thanks to Diane Peters-Wynn, the American Red Cross CEO of the Pacific Islands region. Thanks so much, Diane. And if you have an idea for a quiz, uh, write to us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Well, that does it for us for this hour. We will continue our week-long look at our Hawaiian Benevolent Societies. Tomorrow we'll learn about the Ahahui Kahumanu or the Queen Kahumanu Society. Do you have any story ideas to share with us? Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. You can find the Conversation Podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the Conversation. 